as I mentioned, will be in John chapter 7. John chapter 7, we're continuing the series called Believe and Live, which is a study of, uh, of various things in the Gospel of John, particularly those things uh, that describe Jesus, the titles and the names that were given to him, and uh, many of the things that are profound to us yet to this day, and yet it always helps us to review, to look back. What does it mean that he's the Word of God? What does it mean that he's Son of God, that he's Son of Man? What does it mean today we'll look at that he is the prophet? Notice I said the prophet. That will be important for us to understand the difference between him as the prophet and many as a prophet. But I first want to begin with some questions to kind of frame what it is we're going to talk about today. I want you to consider this. If God is good and mankind is fallen, and if you don't believe that mankind is fallen, I will we'll give you a dose of caffeine or something. We'll turn on the television. We'll, we'll bring over some toddlers and you will fully understand that mankind is fallen. But if God is good and man is fallen, would it not be necessary for God to effectively communicate when he made a way of salvation? Could he continue to be a good God and not have told the world what it is that he has done that they might be saved? And the same can be said, the same logic followed, if God is just, if God is justice, if God is one who, who does things properly and things you know, in a judicious kind of way, would he not have to give a revelation to those who are perishing? Number one, that they might be saved. Number two, that they might be rightfully and justly convicted. And then thirdly, if, if God is powerful, and that kind of is an interesting question because, you know, if, if there is a God and he is a creator of all things and he spoke everything into existence, well, then it stands to reason he's very powerful. Well, if God is powerful and God is the all-knowing and all-seeing and all-present creator, couldn't he have gotten the word that in his goodness and his justice he wanted to give to humanity, to humanity? Couldn't he work things out to make sure that they got the right message? And those are questions that we need to ask because all reason answers it. And the word of God answers it. If God is good, if God is just, if God is powerful, he must and he will communicate and reveal himself to people. Oh, we're going to see in John chapter 7 today, in a, in a key cross-reference in Deuteronomy 18, we're going to learn this. We're going to learn that among many other things, Jesus was a prophet sent by God to proclaim the good news of salvation found in his own sacrifice for sins. Now, if you simply say Jesus was a prophet, some people fly off the handle and say, well, he was more than a prophet. Yes, indeed, this is true. There are those who would say that he's a prophet, but would not say he was the Son of God, would not say that he was the Christ, would not say he was even sent by God necessarily. But that's why there's a whole sermon series. Jesus was the only prophet to ever be fully God while being also fully human. Many prophets had come. You can read about them in the Old Testament. You can read about them in other, you know, other things, church history documents, things like that. The, the book of Acts, you read about the apostles. There are many prophets described in the Bible. But Jesus is the only one that was also fully God, in addition to being human. So, because we often take for granted what a prophet is, it's worth it to review from a biblical perspective, and I'm going to uh, offer up to you this, this uh, definition here that you might find helpful. The Dictionary of Biblical Imagery puts it this way. A prophet is somebody who is close to God. He or she is expected 
to be able to discern what God thinks about a given situation, what his attitude is toward their behavior in the past, what he requires of them in the present, and how he will act in their future. A prophet is a living example of insight, dedication, holiness, and commitment. So as we read through part of chapter 7, what I want you to do is I want you to watch the text and see how Jesus fulfills this role, this role of prophet, as we have it defined in biblical terms. So we're going to begin reading in John chapter 7. We're going to start at verse 14. And this week I'm going to put scripture up there for you. Don told me last week I forgot to put it up there for you. And I feel free, you know, if I ever do that, just to wave and point at the screen and, and I'll get the message because I'm doing multiple things here to, to try to help you out. But uh, we're going to start in verse 14. We're going to read all the way through the end of the chapter. So it will help you if you're kind of, you're looking for those things that identify Jesus as this prophet. So here's how, what it says here. It says, about the middle of the feast, and that's described in the previous verses, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Anyone's will is to do God's will. He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this man, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him because no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. Then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? In the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the 
chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know, that, that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone before to him, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing, learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this day for this word. We thank you, Lord, for your care to give us this word. And we thank you for your servant, John, who wrote all these things down. Lord, this day, help this word to work in us. Help us to realize the importance of what's happening here in the gospel, that we may rightly apply it to ourselves, and that we may walk in your ways, and so proclaim the great truth to others. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this position as prophet has been pointed out by John before, as we looked in the previous uh, chapter, in John chapter 6, verse 14, people saw the signs that he, the sign that he had done, that is feeding the multitude, and they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And you notice there it says, the prophet, as it does in chapter 7, verse 40, in the context in which we read it, when the people said, this really is the prophet. And it does make a difference in both the Greek language and in our language, whether that is a prophet or the prophet. And so it would stand to reason that they have one particular prophet in mind. And indeed they did. If you take a look at the Gospel of John and you look at, at that chapters 4 up until chapter 7 here and then even extend that further into uh, chapter 8, you're going to see that there are many, many references and images pulled from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And when you pull that into the frame here and you think about these things, those that think biblically will think about Moses. For it was through Moses that God granted the people man in the wilderness to which Jesus refers to himself as the living bread from heaven. Comparing himself, it's like this manna that came down with Moses. And Moses also drew water from a rock. And as Jesus spoke to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he mentions this and he refers to himself as giving living water. And he brings that up again in chapter 6 and ties the two together, saying, those that come to me will never hunger or thirst. And he's saying, you must eat my flesh, drink my blood. In other words, you must absolutely wholeheartedly accept everything I am into yourself as if I were food. And so it's no mistake then that they are saying this is the prophet because if you ask Jews in those days, you know, what is the coming prophet? Where is that spoken of in the Bible? And they would refer you to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And there it says this, Lord your God, and this is Moses speaking soon before he dies, right before the people go into the promised land. It's been years and years in the wilderness dealing with these people. Their anticipation of this huge event in their lives and in the life of the nation Israel and in the history of the world is about to take place. They're about to take the promised land. And in those discourses that Moses has there right at the end, he says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now some would argue, and it would be right to argue this, that Moses was speaking of some other prophet. For after Moses, many prophets arose. You see them in the books of, you see Joshua is arguably a prophet. You see in the book of Judges, you see prophets. And in Samuel King's Chronicles, you see prophets. And then we have a whole bunch of prophets start to pop up in Israel. But they always held to that Moses was speaking of a particular. And yeah, in type, yeah, he's speaking of all those others, of the familiar ones of Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the, all the crew. But he was speaking of one in particular that would come. And they held this when they began to learn more about God's plan. They began to learn about the Messiah. They're like, you know, he might have been talking about the Messiah. And just using the word prophet. 
because Messiah would surely be a prophet. And so goes the understanding of this. And so John picks up on this. And in John, they're interrogating John the Baptist. And they say, who, who are you? And they ask him, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And then they're, they're asking the same thing of Jesus. Are, are you the prophet? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? And the answer is no. In chapter 4, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Well, she was right. John is setting it up. John is building up to that point when he's going to have some people looking at him. Is he the prophet? Clearly he's a prophet, according to the woman, the Samaritan woman he met at the well, but is he the prophet? And this is where we get to John chapter 6, verse 14, and John chapter 7, verse 40. But notice when the early church began, they recognized this as an important passage about Jesus. They recognized him as the prophet. In Acts chapter 3, as they are preaching the gospel to the people, and in the presence of the very same people that crucified Jesus, shortly after Jesus had ascended to the Father, Peter says this, he says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And he's saying this is about the Lord Jesus. In Acts chapter 7, verse 37, as Stephen is preaching to the, powerfully in the presence of the leaders and eventually gets stoned for this sermon. Now, I've, I've had some bad sermons, and I've had some good sermons. I've never had anyone want to throw rocks at me, or at least not enough to actually do it. So that is why we don't keep rocks in the sanctuary. Um, I can dodge a hymnal much more effectively. It's harder to throw those really fast. But Stephen is preaching, and he says this, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. He's speaking about Jesus all the way through and saying how this was foretold of old, it was foretold consistently, it was foretold all this time, and now you're rejecting it. Now, in addition to our definition of prophet, there's a few major points we need to make about the biblical prophets. And I want to point some of those out to you right now. And so we want to see this. We want to see prophets are, first of all, called by God and are therefore sent by God. So I was going to make two different points that, you know, prophets are called by God and then God sends them. Well, it, it's the same thing. He calls them into his service, which results in him sending them to proclaim particular messages. And we want to hit the scriptures and we want, to see, uh, we want to see it this way, what we've seen in our passage here. And just what we've seen in our passage is simply this. Jesus says this, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. He says in verse 28, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. And so Jesus is very clearly saying all through the context here, he's putting this on God. God is the one who sent him. It's God's content that he's preaching. He said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me, even saying he's going to go back. This was true in chapter 6, in which it was clear. You know, he tells them, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father has set a seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. And he continues to appeal to that he came to do the will of the Father. He was sent by the Father to do these things. And it's all through chapter 6, and it's all through chapter 7. Well, this is how it works with prophets, that prophets are called by God into service. In the book of Amos, Amos answered and says to Amaziah, one of the kings there, he says, I was no prophet nor prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. 
This is a recurring theme among the prophets. We see it in Isaiah, and Isaiah is given this great vision of the Lord, high and lifted up, and the Lord then formally appoints him to go to the people of Israel. And he, he phrases it as a question, you know, uh, who will go for us? Well, it seems like Isaiah is the only person there, and he speaks up, well, here am I, send me. After seeing this vision of the Lord, Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah 41. He says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He hid me, he made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And some will say, well, that's speaking of Jesus. Yes, it is. But it first spoke of Isaiah. And Isaiah used those words to apply to himself. Later in the same passage, uh, the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength, he says. And so I just to decide, he says, this is the one who called me from the womb, to, and he knows his mission, to bring Jacob back, that Israel might be gathered into it. And he's honored for this privilege. Jeremiah has some similar experiences, again, being formed from the womb. This is something that even Paul keys in on uh, in his ministry, that he indeed was called from the very beginning. Ezekiel is given some really fantastic visions that he shares at the beginning of his book. He says this about his mission and his call in the beginning of Ezekiel chapter 2. Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And so you see that the prophets are called by God and, and sent, therefore, by God. But Jesus was a little different. Jesus was chosen before the foundation of the world. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter. He says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. In other words, before the world was even formed, Jesus' mission was appointed. He knew what he was going to do, the eternal Son, forever with the Father, had planned for him what he was going to do. In Ephesians, it's put like this, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And many people focus on that verse of the choosing of the people of God. But do you re realize that it says, chose us in him before the foundation of the world? That means he was there. And this is, this is present and current in my humor, in my, my experience, because Jehovah's Witnesses have been coming to my door. Maybe they come to your door. And maybe they need to read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 again and have emphasized to them the words in him before the foundation of the world. But God does not call any prophet without empowering those prophets. When we think of the context that we're dealing with here and we think about what it is he's saying, they're not only called by God, they're empowered by God, and you think about here as there's all these references that draw our minds back to Moses, that draw our minds back to the wilderness, wandering and things like that. What happened when Moses was called by God in Exodus chapters 3 and 4? Moses was a little hesitant. And he goes, well, you know, who do I say sent me? And he gives him his name, Yahweh. I am sent you. Okay, well... What if they don't believe me? I'm going to give you signs to do. You see, he quips Moses. And then Moses says, you know, I'm not very good at talking. And God, you know, and you sense in the narrative, God's getting a little impatient, but God is never impatient. Don't hear me say that. But I think we put ourselves in that position and realize I'd be fed up with Moses right now. But he says, I, I just can't speak. I'm not very eloquent. And the Lord says, I'm going to send Aaron, your brother. See, God empowers the prophets that he sends. He gave him the signs to do. He gave him Aaron to do. And that's how he has always equipped his prophets with, with power and with people to, 
to help him in his work. Isaiah and the others recognize this. If you look at Isaiah, he says it this way. Um, in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11, uh, the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me. You know, the idea that, that the Lord's strong hand is enabling him to do what he's doing. In chapter 61, he puts it this way. And again, this is another passage where Isaiah is speaking this, and it seems most plainly to, to uh, apply to Isaiah, but it later is seen also to apply to Jesus. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. What, as you know, Jesus quotes this in, in a synagogue and says this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Ezekiel says this in, his, in the, the intro to his, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. There's this hand of the Lord that empowered them. And in chapter three he says, Ezekiel says, the spirit lifted me up and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. So the, the spirit actually picked Ezekiel up and took him places. And that's pretty fascinating. We see that repeated in the book of Acts. And so the Spirit empowers all of these great prophets of old. And they do so also, look at the book of Revelation, as John brings forth this, this revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So God gave it. He made it know by sending his angel to his servant John. So he sends an angel to bring this who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and to all that he saw. And then it says this, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So he's empowered by the spirit as he brings forth the revelation, the, the capstone prophecy of the Bible. And even Jesus was empowered by the spirit. Listen to what John says about him in John chapter 1. John the Baptist bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. In the book of Matthew, you see that at this time, at his baptism, it's the Holy Spirit that leads him into the wilderness to be tested by the evil one. Says this again in John chapter 5. It shows the empowerment of the Father. As Jesus says this, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And in Acts chapter 10, the early church looks back on it like this. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Empowered not just to preach, but to give signs and wonders, to bear witness that he is sent, and thereby endorse the message. And notice how he's compelled in the passage that we read in in John chapter 7, at the beginning of the chapter, the, the, his brothers who don't yet believe in him are giving him a hard time. Hey, we're going up to Jerusalem to the feast. Why don't you come with us and make yourself known? Because they know people are rejecting him. They know that he is already facing difficulties and facing opposition. And so they tease him about this a little bit. And he goes, no, 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 I'm not going to go up right now. Well, he ends up going up anyway. Look at verse 14. Middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. So he went, it's like he's compelled to go. Things were getting dangerous, but he preached anyway. And then consider John chapter 7, verse 37. I mean, he's teaching in a public place. It's not like he's hiding out with the 12 teaching them. He's teaching in public. And on the great day of the feast, the last day of the feast, which is the you know, kind of the climax of the feast that's going on, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He cries it out. As if he couldn't help himself, had to do what God sent him to do. Now, we know Jesus was perfectly in control all the time. 
But this is how it goes with prophets. They're compelled by God. Their mission comes first. This is the pattern of the apostles that we see in the book of Acts, doing miracles and then preaching the good news and facing persecution and then preaching more. And that's a thing. It's really all about the message. It's all about the word of God. God empowers the prophet to bring the message and when necessary gives him signs and wonders to accompany that message. And many ask, well, what about now? Well, we can read the Old, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see the message is fixed. The Bible calls out a curse upon those who would change the scriptures or add to it. And technically, in a very technical sense of what the Bible means by the word prophet, we all prophesy when we proclaim the word of God. You want to prophesy? Open your Bible, start reading aloud. That's the technical sense of what the word means. Now, does that make you a prophet? Well, it depends on how we're going to define prophet. And, you know, whether we're going to limit that definition or anything else. But we don't need any more messages. We now have the words of life, the words that Jesus spoke. And the rest of the scriptures. The spirit works then with the word to draw and to convict. And there's no greater sign. Listen. There's no greater sign a human being can have than to have the message of God preach to them and the Spirit convict them in their hearts and draw them to God. There's no greater sign that's going to convince them. If the Word of God and the Holy Spirit is, is not bringing that faith about in that person, well then... You know, knocking down the building or healing 7,000 people or multiplying fruit or whatever it is, it's not going to help. And the fact is we don't need signs and wonders because we have the ultimate sign. The ultimate sign is Christ crucified. And the additional signs given to us in his ministry and in the beginning of the church as we read in the book of Acts... And then we have a sign that Jesus gave us. He says, here's how people are going to know who you are, that you love one another. Our behavior, our testimony. He says, let your light shine before men. What's the light? So they may see your good works. And these endorse our message. Don't prove the message. And when we make mistakes, it doesn't prove that the message is wrong. But it's that atmosphere and the testimony of human beings preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, the conviction, the drawing of the Spirit of God that is all the sign anyone needs to be saved. And so the prophets are empowered by God. And finally, it's, it's very important, or thirdly, it's important to understand, prophets were persecuted by many. And this is a bit of a biblical theme, and it's a lot to search out. We don't have time to do that now. But let's just take a look at what's here in John chapter 7. Just in John chapter 7, here's what we're seeing. Okay, um, Jesus wouldn't uh, go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. In verses 3 through 5, his brothers said, hey, why don't you do this? Look, even his brothers are giving him a hard time and are teasing him. And then in verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. And that's the real root of the issue. The problem people really have with Jesus and the gospel in his church is this. It testifies about us all that our works are evil. So he says, you go on up to the feast. In verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast. So they're looking for him. Where is he? In verse 12, you know, there was much muttering about him among the people. And some said, he's a good man, we'll get to that in a minute. Some said, no, he's leading the people astray. He's accused of leading the people astray. He's accused of being a false prophet. And in that very same chapter of Deuteronomy that we looked at earlier, it says what you're doing with false prophets. You don't listen to them. You don't have to deal with them. And then elsewhere in the law, it says, you kill them. It's pretty serious stuff they're talking about here. In verse 20, 
The crowd answered, you have a demon. Now, I don't think they literally meant you have a demon. I think that was a saying that they had. Because Jesus says, why do you seek to kill me? And some of them were genuinely not seeking to kill him. And were like, what are you, crazy? That's the way they would say it. Maybe you should, we should start saying that to people. What, do you have a demon? Now, I don't think we ought to take those things lightly. But he was being noticed publicly. And in verse 25, the people are like, isn't this the guy they're seeking to kill? You know, what's he doing out here in public? You know, he's got to be crazy to be out here speaking like this in public. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. So the officers had been sent to Jesus to arrest him. And in verse 32, says uh, they, they sent the officers. They were muttering about him. And in verse 44, guess what? The officers come back empty-handed. They wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? Wow. So they're in trouble, but they're not because they've served the greatest authority, the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at these people's attitude, that these who oppose Jesus, look at their attitude about the common folk. See, these are religious elitists. Make no mistake about it. These are common in our world today, among all religions. But they say, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. The unwashed, ignorant masses are all just accursed. That's why some are following him, but we're not. We're too smart for that. And then Nicodemus speaks up. He says, does our law judge a man without giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So Nicodemus, who had met with him back in chapter 3, he speaks up, says, hey, look, in our law, shouldn't we be investigating? Shouldn't we be hearing him, learning what he does? And in verse 52 shows very clear. They're not interested in that. They're not interested in objectively investigating Jesus because they say, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. There's two major problems with the verse they just said, or with the, the things they just said. Number one is this, there was a prophet from Galilee. His name was Jonah. And secondly is this, Jesus wasn't really from Galilee. And all they had to do was ask. His mother was found often with him. And his disciples were around him. And, and at some time or another, they would know. And somebody would come, hey, I'm really trying to check Jesus out. Help me with this. Is there any chance he was born in Bethlehem? The people knew that. It was common knowledge. Earlier in the chapter, we saw this. They understood the Bethlehem connection that this would be of the house of David. And they also ignored the scripture that said that there would be some kind of an ultimate eschatological blessing upon that area, that region of Galilee from Isaiah chapter 9, which is cited by Matthew in Matthew chapter 4. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali. And Nazareth of Galilee is in the territory of Zebulun. Okay, That's why it's not readily apparent until you do a little investigation. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. There's going to be some kind of a great blessing in Galilee. It's a pretty big prophecy. They should have seen it coming. This guy's from Galilee. Oh, that makes sense. He did a lot of ministry in Galilee. Ah, okay, I'm starting to get the picture. He healed a bunch of people in Galilee. He miraculously fed thousands in Galilee. Oh, I'm starting to get the picture. We need to investigate this more fully. Well, they didn't investigate it more fully because they didn't want to investigate it more fully. The rejection of Jesus began very early. It grew until they finally arrested him, unfairly tried him, and crucified him. And in many ways, this long section of John between chapters 4 and 10, it's really a contrast between those 
who believe Jesus and those who reject him and persecute him. And it's a bit of a crescendo, and it finds its crescendo in the raising of Lazarus. And then the, it escalates to the point where they're just resolved to do away with this guy. They're going to arrest him one way or another. And they do. This is common when one speaks for God, that we are going to be persecuted by many. There is some support here. In this passage, in John chapter 7, there are always some faithful that will listen to prophets like Jesus. The support are things like, as you read through this, the uh, chapter 7 again, you'll see it. He's a good man. Many of the people believed in him. They, they connected uh, what he was doing to the sign that he did. They said, this really is the prophet. This is the Christ, maybe. And then Nicodemus standing up for him before the hearing. These are all signs all throughout that chapter that, yeah, there's some support. It's a contrast. There's more persecution than support. There's more murmuring than, than there are acclamations for Jesus at this point. But some believed, and they believed because it was obvious. And it is still obvious today. In the previous passage, remember that the question arose about who this is and what he means by what he's saying. And he began to teach them hard things. And at the close of that chapter, he says to the disciples, do you want to go his way as well? And Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The disciples were believing, the disciples were following, many others were starting to believe and follow, but many others began to reject and reject more vehemently. No prophet was ever as effective as the Lord Jesus Christ. For no prophet was perfect in his character as Jesus Christ was. No prophet was as anointed as Jesus Christ was. No prophet indeed was fully God as Jesus Christ was fully God. And with Jesus it was a much more God-empowered message because he was the culmination of all the other prophets that had come. And for all the prophets that followed Jesus, he was the purpose of their prophesying. He was the goal of it and the point of it. And as we read earlier from the book of Hebrews, I'll put this up for you, that Hebrew, in Hebrews, it says long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. thought I'd put that up there for you. There you go. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now look at verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the ultimate communication and expression of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. And as such, he was a prophet beyond measure. He was the prophet of prophets. And some will say foolish things like, why didn't the Father, why didn't God just come show himself and speak to the world? He did that. He did it to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. And what was their reaction? We can't handle that. Moses, will you please go up there and talk to him because it's really freaking us out. And that's just my paraphrase of the situation. But that clearly was the intent. It was too much. And I want to begin with some encouragements here, and I want to tell you this. First of all, our greatest encouragement is that God has spoken. Remember where we started, and I asked the questions, if God is good, must he speak to the people? If God is just, wouldn't he speak to the people? If God is powerful, couldn't he have spoken to people? Yes, and he must have spoken. So fools who suggest that that. Yeah, well, you know, the Bible's one way, or Jesus is one way, and there's these other good ways, and yeah, Jesus was a good prophet, and 
you know, well, we really don't know what God said and God hasn't revealed himself clearly. No, he has. Absolutely. And anyone who claims any belief in God and does not then expound the Christian uh, solution as the one and only way to God, Jesus Christ being the way, the truth, and life, if they entertain a notion that there's any other way, or they entertain a notion that the Word of God, the Bible, is not perfect end-to-end, what they are saying is that they believe in a God who's just not good enough to give us the right message. Or they believe in a God who's just not just enough to tell people by what standard they will be judged. And he is a God that's just not quite powerful enough to pull it off. It's all or nothing with this. Either you embrace the Word of God, the Bible, as everything that God has said that we need to know so as to be saved, or you throw the whole thing out and get yourself a blank manuscript and on the first page write your name and write your own book and start your own dumb religion. Because if you don't believe all the scriptures, that's what you have is your own dumb religion. This is exactly what you would expect is a God that would be good enough and just enough and powerful enough to speak. This is everything that God should be and indeed everything that God really is. But the other part that's expected is this is exactly what human beings are like, what mankind is like. So what we see in the pages of Scripture and in the aftermath of Jesus Christ coming, we see exactly what we would expect because we know in our own hearts there are times when we are willfully blind to certain things because we just don't want to believe it. We just don't want to follow it. We just don't want that. So many times we look into the demands of Scripture and things like that and we kind of set some aside and we're just like, yeah, I don't think I'm ready for that. And so this is what we expect. We look in chapter 7 and we say, oh, look at all these people murmuring, grumbling about him and everything else. And we should go, if we're honest, yeah, I know. I murmur and I grumble and I reject Jesus daily in some ways. And in those ways, we all fall short. And in those ways, then, we can see why this makes sense. Why the resistance to Jesus? Why the crucifixion of Jesus? Because if there's a little kernel of it in us, well, then there's bound to be a little more of it in others, right? This is human nature. And so these, spots, these responses are expected, and these responses were prophesied by Jesus, who said, wide is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life. In other words, Jesus made it clear, hey, there's going to be a whole bunch of people rejecting this, but there's going to be some who don't. And so when we see the world react, and we should not let it discourage us, we should always remember we're not doing what we do for the people on the wide way to destruction. Yeah, we prophesy to them, we read the scriptures, we preach the gospel truth to them, but ultimately, there's only going to be certain ones on the narrow road. And that's what keeps us going. If 10 people ridicule me, and give me a hard time and reject my message, but one believes, am I going to go preach to 11? You bet. You bet. Isn't that what Jesus did? The vast majority of the world has rejected his message, and yet many have believed. Millions have believed. People from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. He's gathering them together, and pretty soon he'll have this great multitude that will enjoy him forever. So understand, firstly, that God has spoken. Understand, secondly, that since God has spoken, this means we ought to probably listen to Jesus, the ultimate revelation, the object of all the scriptures. Don't let negative people around you influence you away from Jesus. Don't let them plant seeds of doubt. Why? Because they're bullies. Look how they act in John chapter 7 here, uh, how they treat the crowds and they're despising of the crowds and how they treat Nicodemus. This is normal. Don't let them talk you out of your faith. Don't let them create doubt in you. The ones who have loved you, have cared enough to share this with you, they're the ones you cling to in the word of God. And then finally, 
preach the word. He's given us all a commission to go and make disciples. And we do this with our primary raw material being the word of God. We don't need to heal the sick, though we should minister to them. We don't need to feed the multitudes, though we should feed the hungry. We don't need to do the kinds of miracles that characterize Jesus' ministry and the ministry of the apostles in the book of Acts. We need merely to proclaim the truth, to love our neighbor, to love one another in the confines of the church, and to love God above all. We have been called close to God. We've been given his word. We've been granted the spirit for understanding and for power. And now Jesus has sent us to go and make disciples. Let's go do it. And if we endeavor to do it, here is some guarantees. Some guarantees are this. Number one, you will have resistance. And number two, you will have success. And it's worth it. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you and thank you for this word from John chapter 7. We thank you for the ministry of the Lord Jesus who endured many difficulties. Despising the shame, he marched to the cross for the joy set before him. The joy of a multitude from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language that believes him, that loves him, that enjoy his salvation that he has provided and indeed will enjoy him forever in a new heaven and a new earth. Lord, you are not only good, you are, are beyond any, any conception we can make of what good is. For you have looked upon the world with mercy and you have sent your son to be the sacrifice for sins. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've given and all that you do. We praise you, Lord, for all that you are working in the word of God. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen.